Hi, I'm Keegan Sands, and welcome back to Ship It, the podcast from Dept Agency that's made by engineers for engineers. Did you buy some NFTs for your digital wallet and now want to learn more about the world of cryptocurrency? In the final episode of this two-part series, Brandon Askov and Dave Merwin from Dept's Crypto Collective dive into the world of cryptocurrency and digital finance. So without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Ship It. This is part two of the like immersing yourself into crypto stuff. So we're going to talk today about exchanges, staking a little bit more around um, you know cryptocurrency and how to acquire that stuff. Last time we talked about wallets and NFTs and we focused there. It's where a lot of people start. So we're going to get a little bit more into the uh, financial lingo today, especially in this new decentralized space. So I'm Brandon Azkov. I uh, run a bunch of crypto stuff at Rocket. Oh, I'm sorry. Debt Agency. We have officially rebranded as of today. And uh, or the day of this recording, anyway. And uh, so now I'm officially a Depster. And I'll pass to Dave Merwin, who's with me as well. Hey, this is Dave Merwin. Thanks for joining us again. And I uh, hope you found the last conversation useful. Um, we're excited to dive in a little bit deeper on some of the more nuanced stuff this uh, episode. Yeah. So where we left off last time was we had, you know, we had kind of called it out. Like, we're not going to talk about acquiring cryptocurrency today. That's what we said in the last uh, podcast. But today we're going to talk about that because that's what you would really need to get into investing or buying NFTs or whatever you would need this cryptocurrency for. Um, well, we might mention some cryptocurrencies by name just for the sake of good examples. Uh, that's by no means financial advice. We are not financial advisors. Um, this is not investment stuff at all. We're literally just talking about the nuts and bolts of how this stuff works, demystifying some lingo and hopefully making it a little bit more understandable and a little less scary. And so that when you decide to finally immerse yourself, you kind of know what you're doing. So I want to get, I want to get into this cryptocurrency thing and, um, you know, where do I start? Uh, I kind of don't know where to go. Can I use a credit card? Do I have to like, isn't this for crime? Like what's, what's this all about? Where can I go? So let's start talking about exchanges and we'll talk about centralized exchanges first, because I think that they're a little bit easier for the on-ramp. So maybe we'll talk about a few and why they're easier. And I think uh, to to the little snippet you asked in there, the question about like, is it isn't this for crime? So um, one thing to keep in mind as you are exploring this stuff that, yes, a lot of it is still the Wild West mm -hmm. in that uh, things can go sideways and all kinds of stuff. So, again, you have to do your own research. But uh, there is a lot of uh, legislation legal research, um, things are changing, big investment houses are getting involved. So the idea that th this is now just about money laundering is definitely a myth. Um, and yep. that the US government, huge organizations are getting involved uh, and, and making sure the EU is passing legislation, it seems like every week now, around um, consumer protections for all of this stuff, so. That's right. Yeah, I think it's good to, we'll mention it now because it's in the news a lot. We see all these hacks and um, what people, you know, typically associate hacks with crime. Uh, I think a big reason we see these hacks is because a lot of people are rushing into this space and writing these smart contracts, which um, we won't get into it. But basically, you get you write it once and you can't update it. So you better get it right the first time. And that's where people get a little into um, hot water territory because they do have some kind of inherent flaws. Maybe no one even knew about those flaws before because it is new technology. But there's so much money behind these new technologies that it can go the wrong way very quickly. So when you see these, you know, eye popping numbers in these headlines, um, that is more related to the hacks that are happening because people have implemented things improperly. And then there is the usage of crime. Um, I'm sorry, of cryptocurrency for crime, where it's really more about, you know, trying to stay off the radar. 
But I have to say that the FBI has proved this too, that, that these public ledgers are pretty great for tracking stuff. Uh, if those coins pop up again, it's pretty easy to find them. There's certainly ways around it, but you see every transaction in a public way. Just a quick example that recent, um, at least recent to this recording, there was a hack on the Ronin Bridge. A bridge, I won't even get into it, doesn't matter. Point is, is that they lost a bunch of money, $600 million. And now we're starting to see the person, whoever it was that hacked that is kind of leak, you know, trying to launder that in small, tiny chunks. And it's going to take them a long time. And will we catch them? Who knows? We're going to get more tools and more info about this as it goes. But it's interesting that we can see every move they make anyway. So that's, it's definitely a new world. But to really underscore this point that crime actually account, and there's a lot of reporting on this, accounts for a very tiny fraction of all of cryptocurrency transactions. It's a lot smaller than you probably think it is. I think it's like less than 2%. It is only going to get better for law enforcement once they understand it more and have more tools around it. Yeah, there's some really great podcasts we can put them in the show notes that talk about the FBI strategies for tracking all this stuff and preventing fraud and some of the cases that they've worked on. They're they're pretty pretty cool. But yeah, definitely sure. I want to listen to them. I, I haven't I haven't heard those. I've kind of uh, shifted off the podcasting for a while ever since I started not commuting all the time. Uh, so I have to like find time to like 20 minutes at a time get my podcast done when I'm going to the store or something. But today's not about crime. So let, let's yeah, jump right. Into yeah. It. That's a fun way to start, but it's good to dispel it because I don't want people to think, oh my God, are they encouraging me to go do something that's shady? And it's not. Um, so let's talk about centralized exchanges where they go through a lot of that regulation and of those jump through those hoops. So where I started was uh, with as far as getting involved in um, DeFi and, and buying coins and all that stuff. Um, I started with Robinhood. And so okay. Robinhood is a great app you can install for, well, it's all right, we'll leave. <laughs> we'll leave judgment aside. Leave the reviews but out, I, yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I started with Robinhood. I bought some um, Bitcoin on Robinhood. Um, that was when you could buy, or you still can, but where you could buy like teeny little, you know, I wasn't buying $40,000 <laughs> individual coins. So I could fraction, I could buy fractions. Um, but then I started to learn that I didn't actually own it because it was an exchange that it was a custodial wallet. And so I didn't actually um, have complete control over that. And I was like, but that doesn't make any sense. So then started so let's actually off. Let's pause right there. That's a great time to talk yeah. about that lingo, custodial versus yeah. non-custodial. Now, we talked Perfect. about it a little bit on the last episode. So if you want to hear a deeper version of it, you can check out that episode. But uh, a quick note on it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'll, I'll fill in the gaps for you. But Effectively, custodial is someone else is holding custody of that wallet for me and allowing me to use it. And when it's non-custodial, it's like I hold the keys. It's it's mine in every way. Uh, I have to manage it myself and and take care of all of that and all the responsibility around it. But I'd rather have that control. Yeah. So it's essentially the difference between putting your money in a bank versus putting your money in um, uh, your mattress, right? Like if you with a custodial wallet, someone or to stay with the the example, someone could lock the doors to the bank and you can't get in and get your money, right? Um, right, uh, which is oversimplified. But whereas with keeping the cash in my mattress, I can always pull the cash out and go spend it. So that's actually not that oversimplified. If you think about Russia right now, those citizens are feeling some of this, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that the idea of the custodial deal is that uh, I can buy crypto, but for a thousand different reasons, they can prevent me from pulling it out. They can prevent me from doing all kinds of different things. And sometimes um, uh, that can be an inconvenience or it can really uh, suck. Um, and so they charge 
the, 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 on the flip side, to be fair, um, they definitely have a vested interest in making sure that your assets are kept secure. If the reputation of them comes around is that there's, you know, messing with their uh, customers' stuff, they're not going to be able to grow. And so they take security very seriously. If there is a hack or if something happens, you're likely to get your money back, even though there's no FDIC for crypto. But, you know, they'll they'll help you get those rewards back. Whereas yeah. in your own wallet, if you lose your money or you screw up or you get hacked, you're on your own. So that's definitely... With this great power comes a lot of responsibility. So if you want to yeah. be your own you know, wallet holder and kind of your own bank, you have to treat it like your, your own bank. You have to be really serious about it. And they, like you were yeah. mentioning, there's a lot of pros to being on a centralized exchange. There, the, the sign up is easier. And if you listen to the last episode where we go into deep detail on those wallets, you'll understand the complexity around why that can be a little scary. And they take care of that yeah. for you. You just use a pin code. Yeah. And yeah. they make the buying and selling process very easy. And you can do, we'll touch upon it later, but if you need to get tax information, they can bundle, bundle that up for you pretty easily. Um, but it does come with the trade-off that you're not in total control of your money, kind of like we are today with regular banks. And one of the reasons why Bitcoin was created in the first place was so that there wasn't a central owner of this stuff. Uh, that said, and I think it's worth repeating, it is a much easier onboarding experience. If you're new to crypto and you're trying to get into this world, I think you should start with a centralized exchange. I think that is a common feeling. And that um, when you're ready and you think it's less scary, you can move them into your own wallet. But just keep in mind yeah. that until that time comes, uh, there's a pro and con list that you'll have to go through in your head. And it's going to really kind of come down to matching with your ethics and how you want to think about the responsibility of managing this stuff. And it's there's no wrong answer. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, I, I, I feel pretty good about recommending folks start with something like Coinbase um, because the the onboarding experience is really simple yep. the like what you get when you're in there is at first makes a lot of sense and if it's just about buying coin and sort of dipping your toes coinbase is a really easy way to do it and it's easy to offboard so when you're ready to move into a more complex setup you can definitely roll your coins out uh, relatively easily yeah i uh i think it's worth mentioning i'll mention a couple other ones that are popular so uh ftx Actually, we, I want to mention this too because the next two I'm going to mention uh, fall into this category. So we have FTX and Binance, and both of them have a U.S. property and a .com property. So FTX.us and Binance.us is different than Binance.com and FTX.com. And the reason for that is regulation. So what you can get in other parts of the world, you can't necessarily get in the U.S. And so they really divide those into two different sites, two different experiences, two different logins even. And I would classify those two and maybe even if you were using Coinbase Pro, which is a separate sort of feature or product that is on top of Coinbase. If you're using those, you're probably a little more familiar with trading. Day trading, maybe candlestick charts, kind of seeing value numbers, ticker spreads, that kind of stuff. It does feel a little more finance focused to me. The other day I was uh, checking out KuCoin and a buddy of mine was walking me through some of the bots he had set up on there. And I would say that that is another graduation path. If you're like, I'm, I'm willing to give my money to a bot and let it balance all my trades for me and spreading it all over a grid. So now you're doing really, truly like robotic trading, high frequency trading, but you're doing it in a crypto space. So that is uh, not for the weak of, of heart. Uh, so if you're really, really, you know, you feel like you're ready for that, that's a graduation path. Maybe you can go from Coinbase to Coinbase Pro or FTX or something like that. And then maybe you can graduate from there to KuCoin when you're ready to start playing with robots. I should mention that KuCoin is K-U-C-O-I-N. Uh, I only want to spell it out because there's so many fraudulent things in this world that I don't want someone to try to like steal their name and you go to the wrong site. So that's a that's a good one right there. One of the things 
that you just said really reminded me of why I love this space so much is that we get, depending on your curiosity and your appetite for, for learning, you really can explore and just ex and and have fun with the space. You know, when I first started, I did the whole Dogecoin thing, like riding it and like yeah. go Lord Elon Musk, like wanting <laughs> yeah. that to get watching his tweets. And, yeah. But I ended up making a decision for myself that I was going to stop doing all that because it, it, it kind of like takes over your life. At least it does for me. I get obsessed with what's happening. I'm paying attention to Twitter. I'm at the dinner table, like scrolling through these charts and stuff. So I, I, you know, just because we're talking about it, don't assume that that is your natural progression. You may decide you're not interested in that and that's totally that's fine. fine. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do love that instead of having to like go to Fidelity or some other trading house, that I could go actually directly and participate in these exchanges and and really kind of explore and see what's going on and how does this all work and yeah it's it's really fascinating just from an intellectual side. I totally agree and I think that if you want to get into it and you want to even just learn by going through the process of purchasing or moving or transferring coins and stuff and we'll get into transaction fees and all that stuff in a second. But first, I I didn't put this in the list, so I apologize for going off script here. But um, I think it's worth talking about stable coins. And I'm going to break them down into two buckets, but we'll only talk about one. So the two buckets I want to talk about are basically the um, stable coins that are backed and pegged. And then there's another bucket that are algorithmic stable coins. And that's much more complex. And we're not going to talk about that today. If you're curious about one of those projects, Terra Luna is an interesting one to look at. But I'm going to I digress. Let's go back to the, the more basic one, which is a stable coin that is backed or pegged. Now, it's called a stable coin because it's not volatile. If you've ever looked at Bitcoin or looked at any of these crypto prices, you know they're up and they're down and they're up and they're down and they're up and they're down. But for people who want to use a digital currency but want some more of that stability, you need something called a stable coin. So there are a few different varieties out there. And typically, the model is rather pegged to something where they say, okay, we're just going to, whatever the, the US dollar is at, that's what we're going to tie our value to. Or it's backed by that, meaning there's actually dollars in a bank somewhere representing all of these coins that are in this digital world. The backed version is USDC. And we don't have to get into the politics of Tether, but there's another one called USDT, and that's Tether. And there's a lot of um, speculation that they actually don't have all the money in the bank representing all the coins that they have. Uh, USDC, on the other hand, is backed by a consortium of people. Coinbase was one of the people who brought that to market. Circle was another one. Uh, went through a bunch of legislation to make it happen. It's probably the leader in that space in terms of uh, likelihood of acceptance in terms of a regulation perspective. So if you want to get involved in this space, but you don't want to risk that volatility and you want to just convert your paper dollars into digital dollars, check out USDC. It's on just about every one of those exchanges we've already mentioned. Yeah, and that'll come into play later too when we talk about some of the other ideas that USDC is a kind of an important play. Well, not kind of, it is a very important player in a lot of the, the more sophisticated financial stuff that you can do. That's right. And I, I think a big part of that is that um, all those dollars that are in a bank representing those digital dollars uh, is a, around $41 billion right now. And the way it works is essentially every time they issue a digital coin, they put one of those dollars in the bank. And every time someone converts one of those digital coins back into a regular dollar, they take that dollar out of the bank and they erase that coin off the blockchain. It's called burning. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about KYC and fees and stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, like, a, a segue would be, like, how do you actually go buy that? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. we talked about regulation and centralized exchanges. And if you want to go from a bank account or a credit card or something like that to go buying 
cryptocurrency, you have to go through a process known as KYC. It means know your customer. And you'll hear that acronym a lot in crypto. Basically what it involves, and I think Dave and I have had similar experiences, and we've always, there. basically it's like a third-party service that a site will use to do this, um, kind of like how people handle logins sometimes or, or maybe doing a checkout with Stripe. Like they use another third-party service to help them with this. And my experience has been that I get the option to either upload my state-issued ID in the United States or my passport. And they don't always work very smoothly for me. I don't know what your experience has been. Yeah, my, uh, so... Let's see. I did, actually did one two days ago on uh, through MoonPay, and that worked great. Oh, great. It was amazing. Okay. Yeah, like I took a photo um, of my license front and back, and then a selfie, and I was approved in seconds. Um, so it was the smoothest process I've experienced so far. But the 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 uh, the whole yeah, it was awesome. In fact, I was. I, it really got me excited because I was like, when I, you know, I'm doing everything browser-based and then it sends a notification to my phone to go do this thing after I had scanned a QR code on the screen. And so that whole thing was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like, I don't have to like go take a picture with my ID, email it to myself, store it on my computer, then upload it from the, like, this yeah. is all just simple integrated I was going to say, that was, that was kind of my experience. You know, you'd be surprised how hard it can be to get a decent picture of your own ID, unless you have like a flatbed scanner or something lying around, yeah. which I actually resorted to. I had, I had to dust off an old flatbed scanner. I'm like, I'll try this because it kept rejecting it. Now, this was a while yeah. ago. So it sounds like that tech is getting better by the day. Yeah. Um, so worth, I, since it's a, uh, it's a, it's a ship it podcast. So if there's any developers listening, uh, I want to point out that there are services that drive this. I'll list a few for right now. So there's Jumio. Truly you with two O's. I'm not exactly sure if that's right. On on Fido, on Fido, it looks like F-I-D-O, you know, like the dog. So all one word. And then uh, Stripe Identity. So those are the ones you can start to look at if you want to think about, okay, hey, if I need to do some regulation stuff and I'm, I'm thinking about getting into this space and I know I'm going to need that, you know, know your customer check. Those are some good services to look into. Yeah. And sort of just piggybacking off of that, when you go and sign up for something and, and you, you're like a new service has popped up. So for instance, I was on tiny man. I wanted to buy straight on tiny man. I wanted to buy algo. So MoonPay was the option. So what, what are all these services and why are they being used? And, um, the thing, the amount of work it takes to actually run a KYC system or a payment processing system or whatever is it's a massive amount of work. Yeah. And so, I personally would prefer that the service focus on the service that they're trying to do and that companies like Stripe who have been working on things like, you know, um, PCI compliance and, and, and credit card security and all that stuff for decades now that they stay what they're doing well. And so when it comes to something like KYC, if Stripe pops up and says, we're going to run your KYC, I'm like, good, I'm all in yeah. <laughs> because this is a giant company. They've got a ton of money involved. They understand how to make this work and they're focused on that solution only. If I go to a different project and it's like time to do your KYC brought to you by something I've never heard of. Yeah. Like I'm definitely going to be like, Nope. <laughs> That's yeah, like, like Wiley Coyote entertainment company. You're like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. So the KYC step is necessary and it's a good reason why we mentioned some reputable central centralized exchanges. So you don't find yourself in a position where you're giving your information to someone that's uh, not protecting it as well as they should. Yeah. And yeah. that's another one of these reasons these people use 
third-party services for KYC. There's a lot of regulation and liability around protecting that information. And those companies are dedicated to doing that. So that is a, something you can expect when you first go through this process. And it does mean that it can take anywhere from, you know, instant, you know, quote unquote, within seconds, up to 48 hours, let's say, to, to have that process go through. So you might find yourself in a position where your excitement has to wait for a couple of days before you can go poke around and buy your cryptocurrency. Yeah, and that, that's, uh, yeah, uh, it would it caught me by surprise at first. Like I would try to do something I was super excited about. I'm like, I got half an hour. I'm going to go through and I'm going to do this. What? So I think what you learn really quickly is like, just got to think about things in steps and like, don't, if you're trying to do something too fast, you might end up missing something. Yeah. So give it, give it time to breathe. Like let it have a couple hours. Let, let, let yourself stay curious, but be patient because there's a lot that has to get figured out in the background. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really good, Thing to say for like all of the stuff we're going to talk about today is that uh, you know take it in slow. You're learning a new concept, and your your brain's going to fight it a little bit. Just it's natural, so it's good to let the dust settle, kind of let those concepts really set in before you just plow forward. If you go too fast, you will probably screw up some step that's important. Yeah. So fees. Let's talk about transaction fees with these centralized exchanges because that's definitely something that they compete on, and it's worth knowing because it's not just about a fee that they might collect as a subscription kind of thing. Those are services that some of these exchanges are, you know, experimenting with right now. I'm really talking about when I want to buy something and when I want to sell something. So the one of the great things about a centralized exchange is that it's a quote unquote fiat on an off ramp. So regular money, paper money on an off ramp. So I can put money in, get cryptocurrency, take, you know, give them my cryptocurrency, take money out. To do that, they charge fees and it ranges from exchange to exchange. And I'm wondering what your fee situation has been like, Dave. Mine have been, with Coinbase, they've been small, but I know a lot of people complain that they're higher than other exchanges. A small, I say like three to $6, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started, uh, I was, I did start on Coinbase. I absolutely love the UI. The user experience is freaking amazing. It's really good, yeah. Yeah, and then my really good buddy who I trust was like, oh, dude, you gotta be on FTX because the fees on Coinbase are gonna kill you. Well, so I was like, oh, yeah, I don't want to get killed on fees. So I transferred everything to FTX, which I love FTX. And it's been an, an yeah. amazing experience. But the reality is, the, the, like you said, those fees, you're going to have to pay the fees regardless. The, the fees, the difference are points of percentage. And so if you're, if you're investing a significant amount of money, like you're moving towards whale, then, yeah, this is really going to matter. Yeah. But I think for most people... Staying on Coinbase and staying on Coinbase or staying on FTX or whatever, like fee hunting is rarely going to return the dividends of just being smart and investing in good projects, right? right? It's not even close. So it's kind of like, what kind of trader are you? Do you want to hold it or do you want to be a day trader type? If you're going to plan on making a lot of trades, then yeah, you probably would get killed on those fees. Right, right. Like most, you know, my, my dad would be proud to hear me say this, like, most of it is about like dollar, you know, um, dollar cost averaging and like not, not chasing, not doing day trading, that kind of stuff. So, um, and no judgment on that. Like I have friends who are doing that and they're doing great, but uh, it's just, it's too much anxiety for me. So the fees really are like, okay, I'm going to pay fees every couple months uh, or sorry, I'm going to pay fees every month, but it's like, it's, it's really not a huge deal. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny. I, I'm trying out the, because um, they gave me a 30-day free trial through Coinbase to do this new thing. They're trying out like a subscription model for $30 a month. 
but no trading fees. So I've been like right away the first week, I'm like small amounts of all these little tokens here and there. Cause like, why not? And I'm not paying any trading fees. It's great. But I realize I'm not that kind of investor trader, whatever you want to call it. I don't do frequent trades like that. I'm more of a buy and hold based on my belief in a project. And so those fees to me all of a sudden don't feel that big because my trades are infrequent, you know? Um, so maybe that's why I feel that way. But it's true. We also should talk about, um, there's another fee that I didn't mention. Well, we, that you have to pay a fee to move it off and it's similar. And like you mentioned, it's sometimes it's a fixed fee and sometimes it's a percentage-based thing. Um, but there's another kind of fee, which is when you want to move that thing out of that custodial wallet into the non-custodial wallet that you'd rather manage yourself with all that responsibility, when you're doing a, tr- uh, a moving transaction like that, you're going to pay the, not only will you pay a fee to the exchange, typically, you're also going to pay the quote unquote, you know, transaction fee or gas fee that is uh, needed for the blockchain itself. And I say that yeah. because right now, at the time of this recording anyway, for Ethereum, that is a meaningful amount of money. Yeah. So, and this is where it gets you is if you're, let's say you're going to do something off the exchange. So you're going to participate in a project. You're going to, um, uh, we'll get into this later, but if you're going to start doing staking or you're going to do any of the automated market stuff, right. You, you, you and you're going to use a fiat currency, like your checking account or your visa card to go buy those coins. And so here's where it becomes an issue. You go buy the coins, you pay all the transaction fees, you then want to move it from there to the uh, AMM. So like, you know, go from Binance to Tiny or go from Coinbase to Uniswap or whatever. That's where it becomes, that does become where it becomes an issue. And so like, and if you're doing that in a dollar cost average thing, so like you're buying every month, you're buying $100 of the same thing, but Coinbase, like you do it through Coinbase and you're buying $100 of Ethereum, then you move it off to Uniswap to do something else with it. Now you're now you're like wiping that hundred dollars out every time because of those transaction fees and the gas fees. So that's that's where you might do something like go directly to Uniswap, do the KYC on Uniswap, and then buy that through whatever service they have right on that thing. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? It does, and I I think a couple people might be lost listening, but it's a great segue because we just mentioned two decentralized exchanges, Tiny Man and Uniswap, and that is. Um, that's when we start to get into the, okay, you're getting a little bit more pro. You want to maybe get into a project that isn't available on a centralized exchange because they don't have every coin in the world on these centralized exchanges. You have to go through a, you know, a pretty rigorous process to be vetted by those exchanges and then, and then get on there. So there's a lot of other coins and projects in the world that you can find on what's called a DEX or a decentralized exchange, so DEX. And the reason why they use that term, and I realized recently like why all these there's so much lingo in this space is because I can say DEX and someone else who knows what I'm talking about knows all the things that are wrapped up in that term. Sort of like being a musician, being able to speak about, you know, let's play in the key of A sharp. And so in this case, uh, a DEX is different than a centralized exchange in that it's always a uh, peer-to-peer transaction. There's really no centralized authority doing any of this stuff. It works off of um, concepts like liquidity pools, which we'll touch upon in a second. And it's really sort of a decentralized bank with a a community sharing that bank. And it's a very new concept. It's unregulated still. I, it's a little unclear how it would even be regulated if it were to be regulated, but it is sort of the graduation path of this concept. So if you start with a centralized exchange and eventually you start to get more involved in this and you do want to move those coins into your own wallet, okay, well, why did you want to do that? Probably because you want to go get involved in a project somewhere. And 
before long, you'd be surprised, uh, you're going to end up hitting a decentralized exchange. And it'll probably be right away because of staking. And that's one of the things that these decentralized exchanges offer. Uh, centralized exchanges offer it as well, but some of the rewards you'll see on the decentralized exchanges are tantalizing. So let's get into staking. Yeah, so I, just to kind of, you touched on it a little bit, but I, I think it's important to kind of bring bring that concept home. So like right now, if I go, if I take uh, $100 and I take it to my bank, um, I can deposit that in the bank, right? And so that $100 is now sitting with the bank, but the bank takes that money and they go invest it in a whole bunch of other stuff. And then what they earn interest on, on my money um, and then use that interest to do whatever they want internally. And then they give me back like 0.05% yeah. of the overall thing. But they're but getting they like 8% and you get a fraction right. of that. Yeah. Right. And I get a teeny fraction of that. And so what, what is interesting to me about the DEXs is, is that um, uh, I can participate in those and then I am now the bank with my own money. So if I'm going to take the risk with my money now, yes, there's the FDIC and that's a whole different issue. But the, the point being, if I'm going to take the risk of my own money, I should get all of the reward. And so by participating in these things, I get to earn that interest straight. And if I don't like whatever interest points are going back to the project or whatever, that's because I'm willingly deciding to support that project. Like it's You're not, still getting a bigger cut overall. Right. I'm getting a way bigger cut overall. So it's a good point to, um, sort of kind of remind people that when we talk about decentralization, the point is to remove the middleman. And in the case of finance, that middleman is the banking system. So yeah. this is, yeah, you get to behave like a bank in this scenario. You get to use your own money the way that a bank would, but it's directly to you. And I think that there's some other benefits and a little off script as well, but the, choose, we keep saying the word project. And I think it's important to kind of identify like these things are not just ways to make money. Like, I mean, they, they clearly are in that you can make money, but the, every single one of the names that we've brought up, they're trying to do something. And it's, it's not just that they're trying to make money. It's that they're trying to wrestle with a problem and come up with a solution in a unique way that is automated and takes out the middleman and brings more freedom and control to the people who participate. So while I, you know, if I go to FTX US, um, the, and we can get it. This is really deep in the weeds, but I participate in that because of the blockchain that it's written on that I, I want to show support for that technology. I want to participate yeah. in the ecosystem by being a member. So when we keep saying projects, what we're what we're saying is they literally are projects that are trying to solve something. And so as more as more of like sort of a backup to the idea of staking, I'm choosing to do something with my money that I get to accept responsibility for and earn interest on by participating in a project that I believe in and are, are interested in. That's a good way to put it. I, I think I describe it sometimes like if you think about Apple and Amazon, they both started out of a garage in Silicon Valley. And right now that's about a million of these companies or a hundred thousand of them, or however many there are these projects. They're small. And that's why we call them projects as opposed to some massive company like Amazon is now. Everyone's trying to figure out what those future Amazons will be out of this pile of garage sized companies we have right now. So the closer you get to this stuff and start drinking from the fire hose more, you will find yourself gravitating toward certain things that really kind of align with your point of view, um, the way that they operate. Maybe it's even something as simple as just like, hey, I'm a designer and I like the, the UX and UI all over this blockchain's stuff. 
which would probably be Solana, by the way. Um, if because they just have a lot of like this, I love the design around everything on that. It's I'm glad you called that out. Thinking about projects that way is something that happens naturally over time. If you are curious about what these are at first, you'd be surprised how many great resources you can find even right through your own exchange that'll link you to um, their website. Maybe I can say the white paper, but honestly, I think that's a lot for most people to take in. Um, you can find videos on YouTube. You can usually find good synopses somewhere. Um, if you are the kind of person who likes Reddit, you can find a trove of information there. Not all of it's accurate, of course, but yeah, it's a, uh, I hate to like drive that point home. Like do your research. I would say, yeah, always do your research. That's a kind of an underscore of like just the rest of our lives forever. Centralized exchanges do that vetting process so that the majority of their coins are less of a risk than the ones you might find on a decentralized exchange. So if you're really starting to get toward that decentralized exchange and you want to do some high yield, and we'll talk about yield in a second, high yield staking rewards where you're getting a lot of rewards back, you might be getting into a very risky project. And some of these rewards are high. So if you mentioned before, you know, savings account rewards. Uh, I know I remember taking a personal finance class in high school and someone saying, you know, an average return for a mutual fund is around 8% when the stock market's doing well. You know, it's if that's like, that's a sort of a, if you had to just keep a number in your mind of like what an average return would be based on the economy, 8% is probably a, a decent guiding point. So then you go to some of these, you know, these decentralized exchanges and some of these projects and you see things like 400, 500, 12,000, a million percent. How is that possible? Explain that. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, the, and this ties back into what, where we were kind of started was the idea of staking. So, um, in one of those instances, you'll look at a project and they'll be offering you, and it's no joke, I've, I've actually participated in projects that were offering 400% return on Damn. your staking, staking investment. So the, the underlying principle, and I'm, I am not an economist, and I'm not even very good with math, but the idea is you're willingly committing some of your coin to the project's goals, whether that's funding a DAO or providing capital for doing validation, like whatever it is, you're giving up some of your assets to participate in that project. And for doing that, they're going to reward you in some way. And so um, the, the interest rates are an indication of uh, how aggressively they're trying to entice people to participate. So for instance, if you go to a DAX and you see a staking project and it's showing you 400% return, it means they probably don't have a lot of money or audience and want you to participate so that they can grow quickly so they can capitalize whatever is coming in. So for instance, you might look at one project that has 25% return on investment and then the overall pool size for that is like four and a half million dollars. That's a way less risky investment than one that's like a million dollars, but it has 400% return. That's right. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there that you tend to see these higher percentages when a project is in its early phase because they're trying to draw attention to it. And that's a great way to do it, right? Rewarding people with these massive uh, amounts of payout. Now, they're incentivizing people to... Okay, I should also reiterate here that um, those numbers come down over time. That is a known fact. Everyone brings those numbers down over time. But they're trying to get that early attention. So it incentivizes very large investments for short periods of time. And when I say investments, we were talking about staking and we should uh, kind of clarify that without getting too far down this rabbit hole, because there's a lot of varieties of this, but you can think of staking as just holding your coin and not spending it. So you don't have to really do anything, but you do have the ability to spend it and you just stop staking at the point you actually decide to spend it. Um, or you can lock it, in which case it might that varies. It could be for a certain period of time. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's months, but you do not have access to those coins. You have decided 
I'm willing to ride this out for, let's say, 30 days. That's actually pretty long, but it, some projects are like that. So um, that's what locking is. And that's a version of staking. There is a, a variety of versions of staking. And like Dave mentioned, you can run nodes or participate as part of the, uh, you know, a member of the ecosystem, or maybe you're, it, you know, it, there's such a long list, there's no point even listing them. So um, the point is, is that staking is going to earn you money like a savings account would, but at a higher percentage rate, especially because of the newness of all this stuff. Now, we talked about stable coins earlier, and even if you're not getting into these risky projects, there are plenty of uh, staking opportunities for stable coins as well. Now, we're running out of time, and uh, I have a hard stop coming up, but also we're sort of dancing around this concept of liquidity pools, automated market makers, and stuff like that, which is definitely more in the decentralized finance, the DeFi side of things. I think maybe we'll hold off on that now. Uh, I can see that, you know, we're always talking about let the dust settle. I can see that being a lot for someone. So maybe we'll make a part three of this and uh, we can talk more about the nitty gritty pieces of that. But we can say for now that you can think of staking as a better way of just holding your coins. And some centralized exchanges will do that for you. Most don't. There's better rewards to be had out there if you're willing to take on the responsibility of acting like your own bank and having a non-custodial wallet. Yeah, so just to kind of summarize, if you go to Coinbase and you buy coins, you're not staking, you're just, it's like going off and buying the pound or going and buying the yen, right? Like you're just holding that and trusting the market to bring you value over time. With staking, you're deciding to become your own your own bank and invest the capital that you've purchased in projects in order to re receive a higher rate of return on top of what the market is already doing to that coin itself. That's Is that right. yeah. yeah, and I mean, if you think about it, now that we're removing that centralized banking system, um, the people who are doing these projects and looking for that investment to sort of help their projects start, you know, they get to cut out a middleman too. They get to have yeah. more of that money come directly to them, and thus you have to have more of that reward coming directly to you. It's a symbiotic relationship that works pretty well. Um, but, you know, don't let those big numbers just draw you right in. Not all projects are created equal. So you might end up losing money doing something like that. So be careful. Um, that's, a, that's a great place to leave it for now. You know, like we said, let the dust settle, move along slowly. Um, you can look at all these staking rewards and kind of poke around without ever having to commit a single dollar. So it's a great thing to kind of check out. All right. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. So, you know, I can already tell there's going to be a part three of this. So, you know, keep an eye out for part three where we'll get into the, the DeFi space and, and crack open a few more lingo terms and talk about some the deeper stuff that's a little little more nerdy if you like finance. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. All right, buddy. Thanks.